Good morning, saints of HBC. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll be looking at the Lord's table today as we looked at the Lord's Day last week. In that same vein, I guess we'll now move to a particular about how we celebrate it here once a month, but other churches do it differently. The importance of remembering the Lord at the Lord's table. Maybe you grew up calling it communion, and that's fine. That word applies as both at the heart of our abiding is communion with the Lord Jesus Christ because of the union we have in Him. Or if you want to call it, well, I know this gets into some uh, debate, but the Eucharist in the original form, it's just the word in the Greek that Jesus used and said He broke bread and gave thanks. It's just a word for thanks. And of course, when we remember the Lord's Supper, we do give thanks, don't we? Or some call it the sacraments. And I know that's probably maybe the most... um, Debated of all, what does that mean? Well, just the word itself, a a sacred or solemn oath. And I think remembering the Lord's table can also be that. It's remembering the the covenant, the new covenant in His blood and uh, that He started there in the upper room and that the oath that He swears to us is His love to keep us and protect us and never let us go. Our commitment to follow Him. So you can have all those in mind, but I'm sure... The Lord's Supper is the uh, closest to home here because in the South, there is a high appreciation for supper. Maybe not to a Yankee like me, just it was dinner. Dinner was dinner, lunch was lunch, breakfast was breakfast, and then I come here and supper, and I have no idea. But apparently supper is the premier meal of the day, and dinner actually can be lunch. Let's move on. That's a real debate. Uh, that'll probably get me the worst emails of the week. So I'm just going to move on quickly. Why um, it's so important for us to look at the Lord's table is that when it comes to the ordinances, the orders or rites that Christ gave, two of them for the church that we, from the time of the Reformation, we've been talking about that for a few weeks, from the Reformation onward, even um, in the Belgian Confession of 1561, they were codified to say, look, This is what Christ has ordained or ordered or decreed for the church to continue to do. Remember the Lord at the Lord's table and enter into the fellowship of the church, if you want to call it that, through baptism. The two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's table, both decreed directly from Jesus Christ himself, not invented by the church, the seven of the Roman Catholic church, but received from him, taught by him, ordered or decreed by him during his earthly lifetime. And um, a lot of church historians will see baptism and communion working in harmony in the way that some would say baptism, uh, as you become a believer as you are saved and you say, hey, what, what do I start to do? What's the first thing I need to do? Well, of course, we want to obey all that he has commanded. But that first one staring you square in the face in Matthew 28 is to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. So that would be in some ways the initiatory rite of passage into the Christian life. It is not salvific, but Having been saved, we would say that might be the entryway in. And then communion or the Lord's table is the ongoing participatory rite of the Christian faith. English-Canadian theologian J.I. Packer said it this way, Baptism and the Lord's Supper are seen and explained as setting forth the gospel. So it's about the gospel, these two ordinances. So as to evoke 
confirm and strengthen faith in Jesus Christ. That's what's at the heart of it. Packer goes on to say, superstitions that stifle faith by turning the sacraments into magic rites are intolerable. Reception into the visible church is part of what being baptized means. Confirmation of one's place in the church is part of what sharing in the Lord's Supper means. I'm slowing down at that last section to show that Packer isn't saying it's everything, but he's saying baptism is that reception into the visible church. Part of what it's for. And the Lord's table is confirmation of one's place in it, which is part of what it's for. Now, in the history of the church, these two ordinances, alongside proper faithful teaching of the Word of God, have been seen as the marks of a true church. So, when you're looking and saying, what makes a church a true church, distinguished from a false church, through the time of the Reformation onward, theologians in the Protestant tradition would say that the two distinguishing marks of a true church from the Scriptures are how the Word of God is taught and how the ordinances are administered. And that would still be the standard today. If you want to cut through the fog of denominational differences, and there are many, or even uh, superficial stylistic preferences, not get hung up on those, what really defines a true church would be telltale is answering the question, is the preaching biblical? And are the uses of the ordinances biblical? And you could go back to the 1500s for that. So today, for our church's common good, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12, we want to do everything here for the common good. Uh, We want to build ourselves up in the Word of God by looking at a passage in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34, which speaks to the importance of the Lord's table in the life of the believer. So follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 17. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, In giving you this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the covenant or the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number asleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. 
If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. This is the word of God to us. It is perfect, reviving the soul. May he do that work in us this morning. So the arrangement of of this section, 17 to 34, I've uh, used the idea of the Lord's table being a time to gather, as he talks about, a time to eat. And so I've broken it down into three ways to look at it, the family of the Lord's table, the feast, and the formality of it. Now, in doing so, I just want to say at the outset, sometimes a passage actually is bookended by a beginning thought and an ending thought. And if you look back real quick, notice the amount of times he keeps talking about coming together in 17 and 18 and in 20 at the beginning in that first section, but then he returns to it at the end in verses 33 to 34 when you come together and when you come together in 34th. So... You've heard me say this before, and it's not just to get a laugh because it is a passage about eating to a degree. This is a sandwich section. Remember sandwich sections in the Gospel of Mark? Sometimes where, in order to make a point, the, the writer under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit puts something at the beginning and middle and then returns to that thought at the end so that you see it in its totality. Well, that's really what Paul is doing here to teach on the Lord's Supper. He's saying uh, in, 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 in the zoom out, in the forest of this, any type of way in which you gather needs to be done according to the Word of God. But before I even get into the matter of what the Lord's Supper is for, the heart of it, the middle of the sandwich... 23 to 26, and self-examination, 27 to 32, uh, don't rush past what might seem to be easily uh, laid aside, which is how you are actually treating each other when you gather. Are you acting like family and friends in the church of God and the body of Christ? Or are you... uh, just saying, you know, we don't really need to worry about how we are treating one another here. Let's, let's just get to the meal. And so we see first and foremost, there's a family involvement here. When you come together, you are to be loving and united, not indifferent and divided. And you see that right out of the gates in the first three verses. Hey, I have to give you this instruction. Paul has apostolic authority when he's speaking here to say that your fellowship needs to promote mutual edification and affection, not the opposite, which would be tearing it down, destroying it. And you hear that in his voice right in 17. I'm having to talk to you about how you gather when you take the Lord's table, not to praise you, because you're coming together, what does he say in 17? Not for the better, but for the worse. Now, how could that possibly happen, coming together for the worse in the church of God, when you put your needs in front of others, which is what we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when your spiritual gifts become all about you in chapter 12. Here it would just be a practice that should be one of supreme affection and unity and harmony in a church, and it actually, because of their selfishness and carnality, is tearing the church apart. Verse 18, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. Well, he's saying, okay, on just a practical level, the report I am getting back is that there are divisions in your church because I'm hearing about it and you're doing it for selfish reasons. But then look what he says as a follow-up to the practical. Yeah, somebody, I'm just getting word back from those who are in the church telling me how it's going. There's something deeper than that going on. Uh, He believes that this is going on in verse 18, not just because he hears of it, but what he knows about the church in verse 19. He says, for, I believe it, for there will be factions. There must be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. What's he saying about those who are approved? 
Well, he's saying there is a uh, separation that occurs in a church that you see over the course of time and how people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ actually behave. Imagine that. There's evidence of a person's salvation, whether they're a true Christian or not, by how they behave when they gather. And that time and truth will go hand in hand. And even in Matthew 13, when Jesus is teaching about the kingdom, and He says, hey, sure, the Son of Man, He is going to spread the seed of the gospel, and the church will grow. But while He's doing that, the enemy is sowing tares, and they will grow up alongside one another. And so the theological lesson that Paul knows that he's also letting them know is, hey, it's, I'm not saying it's okay that there are divisions and factions, but I am letting you know that how you see certain people behaving, I mean, in verse 21, uh, selfishly saying me first, or carnally getting drunk, uh, over the course of time, this does cause us to look at the fruit of a person's life and question, are they really in Christ? Are they truly abiding in Him? Or are they just connected? As I have said when we've taught through John 15, you can have people connected but not converted. And this could be apparent in the time of Paul when they gather for the Lord's table. And why Paul would understand this theologically is, is maybe he just has to look no further than the first Lord's Supper back in John 13. And at the first gathering of the Lord's table, even breaking bread with the Lord Jesus Christ who is instituting the new covenant, you had a false believer there. Judas, the one who was going to take the bread and dip it into the cup. So right there at the institution of the first communion ever, inaugurated by the Lord Jesus Christ, you had a false believer in the midst who had walked alongside Christ and heard him teach and had gone out and done ministry in his name. And all the while wasn't a true convert. So that's the the theology of the church that Paul understands. There are going to be factions among you, and it'll become evident who the true believers are. Yet, look at 20 to 22, he's not just kind of uh, laying it aside and saying, that's fine. He's saying, well, stop acting that way. Just because there will be some that reveal themselves to be untrue doesn't make it okay. So when you meet together uh, to eat the Lord's Supper, don't just do whatever it is you want to do and be brought down by the rest. Verse 22, he exhorts, hey, if you're going to get together for, for a feast, now, I guess you would have to go outside of the Scripture to understand more of this, but in the early church, they would do these things when they gathered and, uh, as a church, especially in a home called a love feast, and there would be a meal that they would bring, come together with. And he's saying, somehow, when you are coming together for these meals, people are being despised, especially, verse 22, those who have nothing. There was haves and have-nots. Um, archaeology from Corinth found later that in some of the larger, wealthier homes in Corinth, uh, Christians who would host a church would have uh, a certain area, I guess in the south, we'd call it the dining room, and outside of that would be another area where more people can gather. And inside that main dining room, probably in in some of these excavations, 20 by 20, you would have a three-sided couch called a triclinium. And um, that's just a fancy word that we would call a sectional where you could kind of relax and lay around it and have some food. And I, I offer that fancy word to you so that when you get over to somebody's house for the holidays, instead of just fist bumping your butt and be like, dude, nice new sectional. You'd be like, hmm, outstanding triclinium, friend. Is that of the Bronze Age? And uh, then you go over to his new triclinium and spill your Thanksgiving cranberry sauce. And he's like, get out of my house. 
or go to the atrium, which is the area that probably in the time of Paul, the the lessers, the have-nots were being um, left out there and not included in the group. And that could have caused that division because it's saying, hey, we're in here and we're eating and, and then some getting drunk and you guys can stay out there in the atrium. And I get, you know, even around the holiday, you got the adult table with Thanksgiving and where do the kids sit, you know, out there with the dog. Scraps from the table for the kids. It was a big deal for me to get invited to the triclinium when I grew, you know, when I was back in the day. But I'm just saying, we, we understand there can be separation. But what was at the heart of this was a selfish, indifferent, unloving spirit. And he's just saying that should never characterize the family that gathers at the Lord's table. So that's the first thing we learned from 17 to 22, that uh, we have to remember our unity and harmony when we're coming together in communion. Because it's for the good of the church that we do this as one, not even in the Lord's table, become so self-centered and it's just about me that we don't realize there's a communion we enjoy with each other as well as with the Lord Jesus Christ. And even in John 13, he says, the world's going to know you how you love one another. So that would be the start of learning about the Lord's table is it, it is a time to gather as a family and to do it as one. But now we get to the meat of the sandwich, verse 23 to 26. This is the feast. Who's it for and what's it about? Well, the who's it for is rather easy. It's for the Lord. Because it's from the Lord, verse 23. That's how Paul received it. It was initiated by the Lord in John 13 to 16, where he was celebrating the Passover with his disciples. But he was going to be moving on from the Passover, uh, upgrading it to a new covenant. He was going to be leaving behind uh, that which was the custom for Jews in the past to remember deliverance out of Egypt to the promised land and saying that that deliverance was on the physical level, wonderful and all to the promised land. But that which I am inaugurating here, a new covenant in my blood, Luke 20, this is above and beyond that, or Luke 22, 20. This is a new covenant in my blood that is taking you out of the old and bringing you into the new. Well, this promise was in Jeremiah 31 where it was prophesied, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the old covenant, which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Verse 33 of Jeremiah 31, But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And here's what's going to be different about it. No longer be on stone tablets. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying know the Lord for they will all know me. It's personal. It's not dependent on a prophet like Moses to be the intercessor for the people anymore. There will be one mediator between God and man and who is that? the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the promise of the Messiah to come and to inaugurate a new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 34, that does this. What's at the heart of it? I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. So that's who it's for. It was instituted by Christ in the upper room and he delivered it, or Paul received it from the Lord and now he's delivering it to these Corinthians because remember when this letter comes out, uh, 55 you know, 20 years or so after the Lord ascends, uh, you don't have any of the Gospels circulating and writing yet. 
So, so he's delivering this to them before they have their own copy of Mark or, or Matthew to be circulating among them. So teaching proper instruction on the Lord's table, though it have been given orally from the presentation of the apostles and prophets who were preaching and teaching in churches, uh, he's giving them instruction to try to correct the things that were going wrong. And he first corrects their, their treatment of one another. But now he gets to the heart of it. Do you understand what this is all about? It's all about Christ. Which moves us to the next point. It's not just who it's about. It's a feast to honor the Lord. It's what it's for. And that is very clear in 24 and 25 repeated. This is to be done in remembrance of me. I mean, if you understand anything about taking the Lord's table, you understand that it is a commemoration. It is a reminder. It's a recollection of Christ. Both his body being broken and his blood being poured out so that sinners could be forgiven. It's recalling his perfect life, keeping the law in in every possible way. Even more unimaginable than, than that law that was written, but to love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and, and to never, not for a moment in his night, life, not have a perfect love for God. He kept that in a way that no one ever could. So that when we remember his life, we remember it's a perfect life, but then when we remember his death, we remember it's a death that we deserve. And he stood there as our substitute, as our sacrifice. And you need to go no further than the book of Hebrews from chapter 6 to 10 to see, hey, prior to this, in that old covenant in the Mosaic law, uh, there always had to be a priest, always offering a sacrifice. It was never enough. It had to be done daily. And it said, Christ now is the better sacrifice. He is once and for all the sacrifice. And that God accepted it. And it was pleasing to him. And now in remembering what Christ did on our behalf, we could come to him fully and freely, as Hebrews says, boldly approaching the throne of grace. That's what it's for. It's to remember. And yet, remembering what it's for has actually divided the church over centuries. Because rather than focus on the remembrance, which is very clear in verses 24 and 25, uh, there's a word that has split the church Not the only reason, but one of the reasons, not just Catholics and Protestants, but Protestants and Protestants, not over a a word like remember, over a two-point Scrabble word, is. The great debate that started at the time of the Reformation over what does is mean? How is Christ part of this feast? When he says, this is my body, holding the bread, and this is my blood, holding the cup. And so the great debates began in church history. How is Christ part of the Lord's table? So let's look at those different views the church has had. And it's, this is for our edification and good, because you'll meet people that likely, whether Catholic or Protestant from a different denomination, will have different views on what happens at the Lord's table because of their view on how Christ is part of it. So let's start with the most well-known one, where Protestants broke with Catholics. And it was over the word transubstantiation, which will get you a lot more points in Scrabble than is. It was established during the Middle Ages. Guys like Thomas Aquinas, the Council of Trent, the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215. And this was the definition from that Fourth Council in 1215. There is indeed one universal church of the faithful outside of which nobody at all is saved. 
in which Jesus Christ is both priest and sacrifice. His body and blood are truly contained in the sacrament of the altar under the forms of bread and wine. The bread and wine having been changed in substance by God's power into his body and blood. This unbiblical idea is that when a priest blesses the bread and cup, it miraculously turns into the body and blood of Jesus in substance, even though in appearance it's the same. So, trying to understand that as simply as possible, it could say that though um, outwardly you would still see it as bread and, and wine and you would taste bread and wine, it's actually the body and blood of Christ. And in taking it that way, it infuses, imparts righteousness into you. And that that imparted or infused righteousness makes you more righteous. Not by faith, but by just the work of it. And, you know, I was trying to think, like, what is that like? Because it's, I mean, it's just the idea of... Um, it turning into that is wild in and of itself. But I think on the level of um, just the, the mystical nature of something like that, it, it's, it's a shortcut, if it's anything, to thinking I can just have this magical thing that makes me more righteous. Uh, it would be similar to, never a perfect analogy, but if, um, if uh, you know, Curtis, he's, he's a great dancer. And he's always wanted to... Um, be the next Michael Jackson. He's never told you that, but he's really good. But if somehow um, Michael's sequined glove uh, got auctioned off and we gave it to Curtis, it would be like this idea that if he put the glove on, then suddenly he would be able to like dance perfectly like Michael Jackson. And even if he passed it to me, look out. <laughs> Moonwalking across the stage. That I would somehow, the, the, the life of my MJ would be in me. Or if the other MJ, the GOAT. I always have to mention this from time to time for the young people. The GOAT is Michael Jordan, not LeBron or anyone else. If I found his original pair of shoes he wore, you know, to win the dunk contest in 85 and put them on and jumped from the foul line, I'd make it two feet and my knees would blow out. But no, they're Michael's shoes. Aren't they going to infuse me with this skill? No. They'd be cool to have. And maybe at best you could say they'd have inspire me. Well, the view of transubstantiation is that this would somehow transform into the body and blood of Christ and it would also transform you into a righteous person, not by faith, but just by the doing of it. This is built on a faulty hermeneutic, and that's just a word for interpretation of Scripture, when you take uh, verses literally that are meant to be taken metaphorically. And so as I did my study on the Roman Catholic view this week, they go back to John 6 where Jesus is teaching, I'm the bread of life and eternal life. Uh, you have to eat of my flesh and drink of it, my blood. And of course the Jews were offended by that and walked away and some of his disciples, but the disciples who understood the metaphor of it weren't saying, oh, how gross, they got it. He's the bread of life. He's my nourishment. He's my eternal life. Because if you follow that same literal hermeneutic and just be fair and say, shouldn't we then apply that to all the I am statements? I mean, if he's, I got to eat literally of his body and drink of his blood to be righteous. Then when he talks about in John 8, I'm the light of the world and you got to follow that light to make it to eternal life. I better find a light bulb and grab it and say, come on, Jesus, show up and guide me to heaven. It's crazy. 
Or I'm the door in John 10 that a sheep must come through to eternal life. So, you know, find a good door and pray that Christ manifests himself in that door. I mean, is that what we're supposed to do with the I am statements? I'm the vine, you're the branch. Go find the local vineyard around here and hold tight. Come on, Lord, show up. No, we get the metaphor. And we understand that every single one of those metaphors is teaching us that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. But the Catholic Church, in this idea of it's his body and blood, have turned it literal, and by that have turned it into something it's not meant to be. Luther, who still had a little bit of his Roman Catholic roots resonating in him, came up with a compromised view called consubstantiation, where he would say, okay, I'll grant that the bread and the wine aren't physically him. But he said, he, he comes around and he is present and he uses a phrase, in, with, and around, and under the body and blood. And the, the view is that Jesus, though we would read through the scriptures, especially Hebrews, it makes the emphasis that he is where right now? He's where? Like right now, where's Jesus? He's at the right hand of the Father, seated. It's called the session of Christ. And that's where he rules and reigns from and upholds all things by the word of his power. Doesn't need to move. But they would take this view that Luther had, which is somehow he's there, but then he's physically in, under, and around the communion elements all around the world, whenever it's being taken. So, I mean, if we're operating and believing that there's a true church in a lot of places around the world, this could be like a 24-7 thing. And he's doing that all at once. And though he's in physical bodily form in heaven, he, he can divide himself out. And that's where guys like John Calvin and, and Zwingli were like, no, we can't even be down with that one if we're looking at the scriptures and understanding how they're presented. And so Calvin came up with a view called spiritual presence, which is what it says it is. That he, it's, it's something we behold of by faith, that he's spiritually present with us in the Lord's table. And... Um, we don't, I mean, we, we have our physical senses, but that's not really the crux of it. It's, it's beholding him by faith that he shows up. Calvin wrote this about the Lord's table, and I think it gets at the heart of our union with Christ and communion with him. The Lord's table is meant to assure us that the body of our Lord Jesus was once and for all delivered up for us, so that it is now and forever ours, and also that his blood was once and for all shed for us, so that it is always it is and always will be ours. Christ is so incorporated into us and we into him. See, now it's about Christ incorporated into you, not into the elements. That we can call ours all that is his and his all that is ours. That's beautiful. Yet, a guy like Zwingli, who was a contemporary of Luther and Calvin, still said, no, I'm going to keep it really basic. I'm not going to make the emphasis on this is my body and this is my blood and try to figure out where Jesus is as if he has to show up here. He just says, I, I think it's memorial. And he came up with a view called the memorial view where the focus is not so much on Christ coming to me, but me remembering Christ and by faith being brought to him. Uh, Colossians 3 would be a good example of this. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ... Keep seeking the things above where Christ is. There's your is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I think 
Zwingli and those who would take the memorial view are probably reading Colossians 2 and 3, especially, hey, don't lose sight of the substance for the shadow and trying to figure out, you know, which, where is Christ at in the Lord's table? Is he, when does he show up? Is it when I'm uh, giving thanks or when I'm taking it? And I think Zwingli and others of the memorial view would just say, no, in the remembrance of him, you by faith are actually being brought to his table. Because, be, because you have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in you, you already have the mind of Christ. He's your, the Spirit's your resident teacher, and He's bringing to mind all the wonderful truths about Christ and Him crucified to you. The Spirit's bringing you the truth of it, but where are you by faith being taken? You're being taken up to Christ, where He is seated in the heavenlies. That's where our minds go to. Now, you may be somewhere between the spiritual presence view and the memorial view. Maybe it's new for you here and you're like, "Uh, yeah, that's fine with me. I mean, the two views that I would put off the table to say you don't have scriptural evidence to back it up would be the transubstantiation and consubstantiation view because it really does take the emphasis off you are abiding in him and he in you. You have union with Christ here. It's not about being united to these elements, these physical things that you see. They They are symbols given to what? To evoke as we said about J.R. Packer at the beginning, evoke faith in Christ, encourage faith in Christ, so that we receive the grace that God has for us in Him. And I do think, if you're like, well, isn't there something about the physical nature of bread and cup that can encourage me? Well, I think of, of you know, going back to John 6, 35, when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, he who comes to me will not hunger. I mean, sure, whether it's in the communion time, or anytime you have a fresh baked loaf of sourdough and you're thinking like, man, I'm hungry and this feeds me. It's good. It satisfies. You can transpose that, can't you, to the higher key and say that when I come to the Lord's table, this bland wafer, see right there it falls apart. Like you're not thanking the Lord for like the taste of this wafer or this fake juice. But you are saying, hey, in the same way that bread is meant to satisfy my hunger or, or drink is so that I would never thirst, I have that in you, Christ, eternally forever. And, and so, again, it's the memory. Yeah, your senses are helping that out. But again, don't get lost on those shadows for the substance, who the meal is for and what the meal is about to remember. There is an element, too, that I, I don't want us to lose here in, the, in, in verse 26. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Um, this, this time is about remembrance, but it is also a proclamation that as the preaching of the word makes the gospel audible to our ears, so the ordinances make it visible to our eyes. And as Christ is proclaimed in each, therein are the surest marks of a true church. That yes, when you hear the gospel proclaimed, it's being made audible to your ears in the same way that when we celebrate baptism or the Lord's table, there's something visually now you're taking in that's representing what happened in the cross for your building up in faith. Isn't that good? The the God, through Christ, instituted these things to help us, to build our faith, to strengthen our faith. And in those we see the sure marks of a true church. So that's the feast. Lastly, as sometimes you hear when you come to the dinner table, or I should say the supper table, 
And grandma says, mind your manners. That's the formality of the Lord's table. And that's in 27 to 32. That there is a manner, maybe not manners, but a manner in which we present ourselves. Because right out of the gates, in light of this uh, sacred rite that we participate in in the Lord's table, Paul goes right from that to a command. In 27 to 28, we should examine ourselves because we don't want to eat the bread or drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. That's what I mean by mind your manners. What manner, what state is your soul in when you come to the Lord's table? And I've had to wrestle over the years with how an unworthy manner. I mean, I don't want to be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, do you? So the question is, what does it mean to come in an unworthy manner? And I, I think upon surface reading, I always just came back to, I really got to clean myself up. Are you kidding me? Like I've got to account for every single one of my sins I've committed since the last time I took the Lord's table and then I would be worthy to take it? That sounds like I'm drifting towards what? A works-based righteousness. That I could put on all the scale of all my bad things with all my good things and now I'm worthy? No. Couldn't be it. Because the truth of the matter is we're all unworthy sinners. I mean, when we come to the Lord's table, we are celebrating the work that Christ did for our righteousness. We're unworthy. We didn't do anything to deserve it, did we? So so it clearly can't be me trying to, you know, get into the weeds of my life, not saying I can't do that. And then I come to the Lord's table and say, oh, now I'm worthy. Because of me? Or is it because of Christ? I mean, you've got to make that decision. You've got to understand that reality. And the reality Paul seems to be moving towards is an unexamined life. One that might come to the Lord's table in a flippant manner. Or indifferent. Or hasty. And saying, yeah, oh, oh yeah, I forgot today was the Lord's table, man. Whew. Uh, okay, yeah, cool, I'll take it. And, and I'm re-upped. I think that, that's more the direction this moves in. Is, are, you, are you sober-minded about what Christ did for you on the cross and the sacrifice that he made? And in being sober-minded about it, are you at the heart of it grateful? Grateful for his sacrifice for you. Thankful for his love for you. And that's what you come to celebrate. And that's to come in a worthy manner. Because if you just come glib and flippant, I think that's where you get on the path of what he gets to in, in verses 28 to 30. You're, you're not thinking rightly about yourself. This is, this is no light, trifling matter, is it? It's life and death, the gospel is. And so to come thinking rightly about yourself is to think rightly about yourself as a sinner and Christ as your Savior. And if you don't, there is a consequence to that. Verse 30, For this reason many among you are weak and sick and a number asleep. And that word asleep is, you know, the euphemism for dead. I don't think Paul is saying um, people are dropping dead at the Lord's table. He's, he's hearing a report back from this church about how many are weak and sick And earlier on, he's hearing a report of how divided they are and how carnal they are coming to the Lord's table. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's able to make that connection. 
And he's not talking about the judgment of unbelievers here. Look at verse 32. For when we're judged, we're disciplined by the Lord. That's the word of discipline that we talk about in Hebrews 12, a father disciplining the children he loves for their good. But then he says, so we'll not be condemned along with the world. That ultimate condemnation is the damnation that occurs for a believer when they die not in Christ and stand before the final judgment of God and their name's not in the book of life. But this disciplining he's speaking of, it could be weakness, sickness, or death is actually in, in the unfathomable wisdom of God. As much as we may not like to hear that and think that, he has the right to do that to his children. It's not for us to try to peer into those things and make a, a judgment if we hear of the sickness or death of a believer that we know and we want to immediately try to connect some dots like Job's friends. No, but we are to let the Scripture ring in our ears and act as a warning from 30 to 32. As much as we might not like it, we have to always come to grips with God's Word doesn't lie to us. This is what it says. And this is how it warns. So to examine ourselves on a practical level, I think we'd, we'd start with Psalm 139, 23 to 24, about the omniscient searching eye of God. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and see if there's any wicked way within me. Test me and know me. I mean, we all love the beginning of Psalm 139, right? You see me and search me out. You know me before. We love that first 18 verses when God's omniscience is, is somehow just out there. But see, the writer turns it by the end in 23 and 24 and says, that same omniscient, all-knowing eye, would you search me with it? Not because you don't know what's in me. I don't know what's in me. And I need your spirit's conviction to show me. So the first thing I would say to examine yourselves rightly it is to ask for that all-searching eye of God to reveal any cavalier spirit, any flippant spirit about Christ crucified in the gospel on the Lord's day. Every day, but particularly on the Lord's day and the Lord's table. You can also not just ask God to search you, but assess your lives by the word. James 1, 23 to 25, it's the mirror that we look into that gives us a right reflection of ourselves. We could also be aware, and this is just the church, our church's methodology, that we observe it once a month, usually, almost always, the first Sunday of the month. You know it's coming, and that might be, first and foremost, a wonderful time on that Saturday before, that evening before, to, to just rejoice in the gospel, spend time in whatever chapter it is that draws your heart upward to the love of God for you in Christ. You know, that might be Romans 8 that we just heard Justin preach from. Whatever passage or scriptures that, that takes you to the heart of God's love for you, the sinner, that'd be a good way to be prepared. And then finally, we, we have to admit, as believers, that when we're doing all of this, this is no rededication from being backslidden, and I need washed all over again, because that's not what it was when Jesus instituted it in John 13. Peter wanted to make it that no, you, Peter, you just need your feet washed. You don't need a whole washing. He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean and you are clean. Well, why were those disciples, those 11, already fully clean? John 15, 3. You're already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. 
What is that word? 1 Peter 1.23, the imperishable word, the living and enduring word of God. That had already cleansed them. That had already saved them. But there is a need to wash the hands and the feet, isn't there? Just like when I would get called in for supper at my grandma's on a Sunday night and I'd be told to go wash my hands with an R and my face. But she didn't say, go get a bath for this supper. You just need to wash the hands, the feet. Just, just looking at your life, examining. Because 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. And if he's done that once for you, once and for all, he did it, for the cro- did it at the cross, and he's done it once and for all for you when you were born again, believer. Now the question remains for some of you. Have you been born again by the imperishable seed of the Word of God, the living and enduring Word of God, the glory of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Have you been born again by that word? Going back to the beginning, when you evaluate your life and you look for the fruit, the change, do you see it? Is it from the inside out that you are rooted in Christ, abiding in Him, and then bearing fruit? Evidence of that salvation. If not, Receive the word of God as it is taught to you today that points you to your only salvation in Christ alone. Receive it, believe it, accept it. Cry out, be merciful to me, the sinner. Because you are holy, God, and I am not. And your son gave his life for me in a way that I couldn't. I'm not righteous enough, but he was. And you could call upon him today. So then you can rejoice with any believer in here in, in the great hymn of the amazing love of God for us in Christ from Charles Wesley. This is, this is the song at the heart of every time we would celebrate the Lord's Supper. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine. Alive in Him my living head. Clothed in His righteousness divine. So bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown in Christ my own. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your son. That all that is ours was already his. And all that is His is ours forever. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies is ours in Him. How can it be that you, Christ, our God, our Lord, our Savior, would die for me? We may not know how it can be, but we believe it. That's how all of us come, by faith. Believing in something that doesn't really add up from our side of it. No merit of our own. But completely and totally at your mercy. And you gave it. You gave it in your son. Christ, you gave it in your life. Spirit, thank you for bringing life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.